This actually brings us to the conclusion of our time of learning from the the experiences of Abraham. I imagine we'll come back in the future to look at Isaac's, Abraham's son, and his, his obtaining of a wife by God leading Abraham in a specific way. So, so yes, the Bible does continue on for a couple more um, events in the life of Abraham, but this brings us This Genesis 22 brings us to this close of our time looking at Abraham's interactions with God as as the friend of God, a friend of God in a unique way that at that time on this earth was unique to the human experience, uh, specific to Abraham. And we look at this in terms of the importance of trust and obedience. It's easy to have trust issues in our world today. I mean, any of you that have tapped on one of those license agreements on your phone, if you actually take time to read them, I mean, who has the time to read a license agreement? You just go ahead and like tap accept, right? I think I gave away my one of my kids one time doing that. Somebody's going to come knock on my door, say, where is he? You, you tapped accept onto that license agreement, right? I, I, or when you're on a website and it says, just to let you know, this website has cookies, and you tap accept. I still have not gotten any cookies from one of those websites. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm not sure. I'm, I think I'm misunderstanding something. But, you know, it's, it's normal to have trust issues when... Uh, our legal situation in the Western world is kind of like, are you aware that this means this, and this means this, and this means this? Do you accept that? Um, But I heard about a man who had some serious, serious trust issues, and almost like looking for reasons not to trust people or things. He said he never trusts the marine biologists because they're always too fishy. Never trust an artist. They're just sketchy. He could not trust trees. Too shady. Graphing calculators. He said they seem like they're always plotting something. Elevators. I'm sorry, uh, stairs. They're always up to something. Elevators are even worse. They're up to something, and then they're always letting you down. The last one that was really strange, I thought, this guy's, you know, lost it in his head. He says he never trusts pigeons because they're always talking about a coup. <laughs> I still recall, thank you, I still recall a message. This isn't even Dad Joke Sunday. What's going on? I still recall a message given by Robertson McQuilkin at the seminary that I attended in which he talked about moving forward in one's relationship with God can be like following a guide rope on a trail. You know, maybe a trail that, that um, it gets a little bit dangerous off on the end, they'll have a guide rope. And, and you might want to follow that hand over hand. And in the same way, moving forward in a relationship with God is similar to that hand over hand. And that hand over hand is trust and obey. Trust and obey. But that's how we move forward in our relationships with God. 
we see that in a profound way in Abraham's experience. And this is really meant to leave us, to make a profound impact, to leave us scratching our heads when God gives Abraham instructions that seem unthinkable. And in so many ways, this this, uh, event in the life of Abraham in his relationship with God is meant to be a climactic moment in Abraham's experience. So we read in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19, after these things, and after these things, being that in, in Genesis 21, Isaac was born. In Genesis 22, as I'll explain, Isaac is about 13 or 14 years old. So in historical literature like this, after these things means, and the next major event is this. Okay, so after, it does not mean next day, next year. It just means the next big thing that happens was. So we read, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He, being God, said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. We are intended to read that and go, what? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. This is the event. This event is intended to shock the reader. The Old Testament commentary says Abraham's trust was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, and lifelong ambition. In fact, against everything earthly. We see from the very start And the author, who is Moses of the Pentateuch, expressly says, God tested Abraham. And he says that expressly, giving the reader, giving us the opportunity to realize, okay, something is going on here other than, you know, he could have said God commanded, God expected, God demanded. But instead we're told God tested Abraham. Abraham. So often in the scriptures, the term, the, a term that is translated test can also be translated proved. God sought to prove something from Abraham. Really, prove it to the reader. So anyways, moving forward. God understood the gravity of his instructions as well as we see. And he states, take your son, your only son whom you love. God's not sitting there going, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Take that kid and do this with him. He's also recognizing the gravity of this. Isaac, as I mentioned, is about 13 or 14 years old. And we see that he's contrasted specifically called a boy with the young men that Abraham takes with him. And so we're kind of given an indication of Isaac's age here. 
This entire passage embodies God's test of Abraham's trust and obedience. And up to this point, Abraham had worshipped God out of his wealth, which with what had been replaceable. And God's command, his instructions here, meant Abraham surrendering what was priceless to him and irreplaceable and hard won. And God's recognized here that Isaac was the object of Abraham's hope and his love. And despite Isaac's place in Abraham's heart and mind, God instructs that he offer Isaac up to him as an offering. And we read, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word of the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went both of them together. We see the details of Abraham's journey carrying these instruments of dread in this story. The fire and the knife in his hands for three days. We see evidence that Abraham had faith that God was also going to do something miraculous. You notice what he tells the young men that are traveling with him? says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This was the promised son. This was the one through whom God said, through Isaac, shall your descendants be named. So we see an indication here of Abraham realizing God is going to do something miraculous. And we'll see from Hebrews 11 that Abraham had in the back of his mind, even if God has for me to follow through with this, I know that God could raise my son from the dead even. So we we continue reading in verse 7, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb For a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Notice Abraham. God calls out Abraham's name. And he says, here I am. Isaac calls out to his father. And Abraham says the same thing. Here I am. I think there's conflict between these two roles. In which we can be very attentive to. He is both. He is to be obedient to God. And he is to care for his son. What would this mean? When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is a very dramatic nature that is described as almost... In in this climactic moment, each separate movement is described. This is literary slow motion, right? Abraham built the altar, laid the wood, bound Isaac, 
his son, laid him on the altar, reached out his hand, took the knife. This is intended to build a sense of what is going to happen here. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Isaac said, here we are. Right? No. We see that third time. Here I am. Here I am. His name being repeated. This is a a, a literary device also that we see in scripture. It is urgency. It is in case you didn't hear me the first time. I'm going to say your name again. God speaks into this. Like whoa. He's not saying whoa you sicko. I didn't mean for you to go through it. It's not that. It is stop. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and so this is after the whole process of Abraham offering up the offering of this ram. The angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on, is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then we read in verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. You can see in these verses here that we see evidence that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is God himself. You notice how he says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham and said, by myself I have sworn. declares the Lord. In fact, I, I agree with those who, who believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is God the Son, what we would call pre-incarnate Christ. Pre-incarnate meaning before he took on flesh and, and was Jesus Christ, God the Son. The new atheists... People like Richard Dawkins and and such, they consider this story as simply an example of the deluded doctrine of the Bible. Being atheists, they don't believe that, that the Bible has anything of truth in it that is divinely inspired, being that they don't believe God exists anyways. But I'm not sure how you can really believe God doesn't exist when you make his very existence your definition of who you are. 
you're a non-God believer, but anyways. They consider this a matter of cosmic child abuse. That they also consider the story of the cross to be the same. Cosmic child abuse. I, I appreciate Alderbert Moeller's understanding of this. He's in, in saying, if this is true, then this story, uh, I'm sorry, if this is untrue, if it's just a literary story, it is an example of ho- horrific literature, of, of literature that falls into the horror genre, if you will. But if true, if a historic event, which it is, this story means that we can be saved. We can be saved by a substitutionary sacrifice. And of course, we know on this side of the cross, on this side of biblical history, that sacrifice was Jesus Christ himself. Some of you, when you see the title, Trust and Obey, you think of the hymn, When We Walk with the Lord, in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. As we do his good will, he abides with us still, as with all who will trust and obey. Abraham was learning firsthand what it meant by a following verse of this hymn. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust We'll see this morning that Abraham's trust in God's promises, God to keep his promises, his trust in his promises, is what enabled his obedience. In order to trust and obey like Abraham, you must trust God's promises in the times of testing. You must trust God's promises in the times of testing. Usually our response to testing is, why Lord and why me? Right? As I mentioned, Hebrews 11 helps us to understand that Abraham was trusting God and his promises of his covenant that it would be passed through his son Isaac throughout this process. His test was one of faith and obedience. Hebrews 11:17 through 19 tells us by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac who and he who re, had received the promises speaking of Abraham was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered verse 19 says God was able even to raise him from the dead of which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Hebrews 11 helps us to understand that Abraham's thinking was, I know that Isaac is the promised child, yet I have this instruction from God. If, if somehow in God's thinking, he allows me to follow through with this, it must be that his plan is to raise my son from the dead in order to fulfill his promises. He was trusting God throughout this time of testing. 1 Peter 1 encourages us that spiritual tests can be designed to purify our faith. He says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, this, this, genu- this tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James 1 verses 2 through 4 reminds us that trials are intended to strengthen your faith. It tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, it should be noted here that God is not tempting Abraham to sin. God is not not expecting Abraham to actually sacrifice his son Isaac. Human sacrifices have always been evil. As, as God would later reveal to his children in the law, uh, prohibiting strictly any form of human sacrifice. And this is why we're told right from the start, God was testing Abraham. We're also told that God never tempts anyone to sin, but does test our faith. But testing usually does come with the temptation. To, to get out from under it, or to at least make it easier through the, what we are tempted to numb the pain with. To follow our desires for comfort at e- and ease at any cost. We're told as much about this relationship between God testing but not tempting in James 1 verses 12 through 15 where he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say he is tempted. Quote, I am being tempted by God, end quote. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So there is a relationship, for sure, between temptation while we are under trials. Uh, Pastor Jeff and I had the opportunity to talk about this this past week. Uh, He was at Dunham's. He shared with me how how he he bought something at Dunham's, and um, the clerk... Uh, handed him his bags and also handed him a bag that carried a hundred rounds of nine millimeter, I think it is. I guess a a previous uh, customer was not handed their bag. Now, some of you guys that are gun owners, I just saw your eyebrows go up. Like, wow. It's like being handed a block of gold these days, right? The employees were amazed. They were they when when Jeff brought the bullets back in. They were looking at him like, "Why are you doing this?" He said, "It's not mine. It wouldn't be right for me to keep them." And I said, "Wow, that was a test. I mean, obviously I'm studying this passage and I said, "Can I use that this Sunday?" He said, "Sure, you know." He said, "Yeah, it was tempting." So so he said, "Because they fit my sig it was tempting. So those tests and temptation, they are they overlap. Because we can sit there and say, well, you know, what's wrong with it? I mean, this could be from God, right? Trust God's promises in times of testing. 
One writer says, in the school of faith, we must have occasional tests or we will never know where we are spiritually. Many of us don't experience tests like Abraham did. But I know that many of you experience tests that are difficult because of how long they last. A lifelong illness. A protracted, lengthy dispute or conflict. An aching calling that God will not let you walk away from. I like what Warren Wearsby says. Our faith is not really trusted until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable. Do what seems unreasonable. And expect what seems impossible. Whether you look at Joseph in prison, Moses and Israel at the Red Sea, David in a cave, or Jesus at Calvary, the lesson is the same. We live by promises, not by explanations, end quote. We live by promises, not by explanations. I like to watch uh, American Ninja Warrior. There's this amazing uh, young lady, 16 years old, that ran the first course, hit the buzzer. And her life motto is, I don't need easy. I just need possible. Nothing is impossible with God. Doesn't mean it's easy. But it's not impossible. There's a side issue here that we, a theological side issue that we need to kind of hit on here. Because the Apostle Paul and the, Apostle, the, the James, the Apostle James, they use the term justified differently. And we learned from Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed God. He trusted God's promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we've also talked about how Galatians helps us understand that Abraham received righteousness the same way we do, because God was preaching the gospel, Galatians says, to Abraham beforehand, when he talks about how through the Messiah, every nation, every family on the earth will be blessed. Okay, so just kind of that little review there. But James 2, 21 through 24 says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I remember discussing with a a friend of mine who grew up in a different tradition. He grew up in the Christian church tradition. And I was explaining we are saved by faith alone and not by works. And he said, but the only place where Scripture talks about faith alone is in James 2. He was actually arguing that you need to be baptized. And if not, then, well, what does James say? You see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is kind of confusing, isn't it? Justified means to be declared righteous. There's being declared righteous the way that Paul talks about it, of being declared righteous in the courtroom of God. You are declared righteous. You are able to have a relationship with me because you are righteous. Welcome to the family. 
But there's also the declared righteous in the way that James points out, faith was completed by his works. And he actually refers back to Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But since we've been walking through the life of Abraham, we know that statement was made back in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed God. So when James is talking about justification, he's talking about his, his faith. Abraham was proven to be righteous. It was declared to the world. His original being righteous before God was fulfilled and shown. This is speaking. Uh, in this situation, James is talking about how Abraham was declared or shown to be righteous by his obedience. And he's, actually, and he's referencing seven chapters earlier, if I'm doing my math right, in which Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's when Paul's use of the term justification, Paul would say, and actually Paul argues a person is declared righteous in that they're saved by faith alone, and he refers back to when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James explaining justification in the terms of proven, passing the test, put on display as being when Abraham trusted God so much that he could even raise Isaac from the dead in keeping his promise. It was declared before the watching world, Abraham is righteous before God. So in some ways you could say declared before God, declared in the courtroom of God, or declared before the world. So Abraham's obedience shows his saving faith in a way that confirms or proves it to all those who would hear of his obedient response to God's test. People like us. So, so moving forward here, and I, I think you'll see this play out a little bit more. To trust and obey like Abraham, if you are to do that, you will trust God's blessings will follow obedience. You will trust God's blessings will follow obedience. If you notice... God repeats the same promise that he gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17, right? It's like, okay, wait, did, does God have amnesia here? He already promised these things here. But I think that uh, Abraham's actions are a vindication of his faith. They're a proving of his faith. And while righteousness was counted to him because of his faith, here we see God validating his faith. And I think that we, when Abraham sensed that God's relationship from this point forward would be unconditional. And that's what we see. No more tests. No more, uh, don't worry, Abraham, this is going to happen. This is going to take place. No. From that point forward is God promising it to Isaac. God promising it to Jacob. No tests for Isaac. No tests for Jacob. And I think that we see this in the term surely. Surely. Obviously, Abraham had not watched the movie Airplane because he didn't respond to God saying, don't call me Shirley, right? But he says here, I will surely bless you. He doesn't use that term. At least, you know, I'm working off the English here. He doesn't use that 
any earlier with Abraham. He tells Hagar about um, Ishmael, or maybe it's telling Abraham about Ishmael. I didn't look at it. He says of Ishmael, I will surely bless him. But in none of the promises to Abraham so far is it, I will surely do this. But with, with Abraham, finally, his, his faith being proven for the world, this becomes unconditional from that point forward. That, that's my take on it. That's where I think the, the, the difference is here of why God repeats this in a different way. Abraham would then, from that point forward, experience further blessings of God as a result of his obedience. Nothing gets added to this promise, but he experienced the assurances of the God's commitment to his promises. In God's statement, I will surely bless you. He experiences a legacy of his faith that would emulate, it would be emulated by others, his, his faith in God. He experiences eternal fruit in his readers, us included, that, that would learn from Abraham's obedience. Trust God's blessing will follow obedience. You know, when you go get your driver's license at the BMV, uh, what do you have to take with you? You know, if you just don't have renewed it after a while, but those of us who moved into, you know, one city after another or something like that, they got to see proof of identity, right? They got to see a social security card. They got to see um, a bill from your present address. You know, uh, for my sons, it was always interesting. It's like, okay, here's their... Uh, American birth certificate. And it says, well, that says born in Liberia. Okay, here's their Liberian birth certificate. Okay, well, how do I know that this... Okay, here's the Liberian adoption documents. Okay, here's the uh, American um, uh, declaration of adoption. You know, you got to prove your identity when you go in to the BMV. The BMV workers don't look at you then and say, from this day forward, you shall be known as John Daniel Bowman, right? I mean, they, they, some of them, I think, want to have that power. <laughs> but no, I'm already John Daniel Bowman. When I walk in there, I'm just, I'm proving who I am. But that from that point forward, I have those presenting documents, right? I, I have a government-issued ID that little gold star from Homeland Security, that I can use that, I don't have to, when I get on an airplane, you know, just, just bring your ID sort of thing. I don't have to bring my social security card, my, my home address, my, my birth certificate. Now, when I go in there, I'm already that person. But by, I then prove that I am that person, and from that for, for, point forward, I have a document that declares that I am that person. In a similar way, when we produce works of obedience, we're not becoming God's child by works. We're showing that he is at work in our lives. This should give us greater assurance of our saving faith. It should also give us a platform to show and to share our faith with those who watch us. And of course, the confirming of the the everlasting sure covenant would benefit the world with the gospel, just as it did with Abraham. And the offspring, singular, let's just, I just want to point this out. And I'm sorry, we're a little long here because we're closing up Abraham here, folks. 
he speaks of Abraham's offspring singular that would possess the gates of his enemies. And this is speaking of Jesus. And we can know this for a fact because Galatians 3.16 tells us this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Quote, and to your offspring who is Christ. That's Galatians 3.16. Or Acts 3, verses 25 through 26. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and to your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That offspring was Jesus to be accepted in faith. And we can trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against the body of Christ. Because to Abraham's offspring, the gates of his enemies have been given to him. You ever heard of an Easter egg in a movie? An Easter egg is defined as the, those blink and you'll miss it. Props, references, cameos, or the inside jokes that directors drop in there for just eagle-eye viewers, right? In Cary Grant movies, every now and then the name Archie Leach pops up. And that's because that was his birth name, Cary Grant's birth name. Different times it'll happen, somebody asks, speaks about Archie Leach. In Arsenic and Old Lace, there's a, there's a tombstone behind Cary Grant that has Archie Leach on it. Well, it's his, his real name. It's Cary Grant's name he was born with. In Star Trek, uh, more than once, in space junk flying by, there's an RTD2 flying by it from Star Wars. But that's in Star Trek. Um, the creator of, creator of the Marvel comics, Stan Lee, he appears in like almost every Marvel movie uh, until his passing. Lou Ferrigno, the original uh, Hulk, he appeared as a security guard in both the 2003 and the 2008 Hulk movies. So these are Easter eggs. Little things where the director just kind of has a little fun throwing them in there. Some of you guys have picked up, I'm, most of you guys have picked up a bunch of gospel Easter eggs in our passage here, right? We see all over this passage Easter eggs, if you will, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, don't we? In... in um, hermeneutical language, Bible study language, these are called types of something to come. And in order to trust and obey like Abraham, we see in this passage, you must trust God's provision of his substituting sacrifice. You must. If you are to have a saving relationship with God that passes the test and is proved out as you meet tests, you must start that relationship with God by trusting his substituting sacrifice. God the Father can identify with how excruciating is the thought of taking his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves, and offering him as a sacrifice. One writer says Abraham is enabled in the surrender of his son to mirror God's still greater love. 
on all the references to God providing a sacrifice, has some of you guys like seeing these Easter eggs like crazy, like I said. That son whom God the Father loves would carry the wood that would be used for his sacrifice on a hill called Calvary. And as Isaac walked obediently with his father, wondering about where the lamb would come from, as this obedient son, we think of Isaiah 53, where we read in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as Abraham carried the fire and the knife, And walked together with his son. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of God the Father's choice to sacrifice God the Son and yet resurrect him. And of course, the providing of the ram represents the fact that one day the final offering would be provided. In fact, the mountain range, Moriah, is actually where Jerusalem and the temple would one day stand. And even the hill of Calvary would be a part of that same land of Moriah. I'll never forget the first time I heard from a professor It was God himself that stood there and stopped Abraham's hand. As if to say, Abraham, you do not need to make this sacrifice because I myself will sacrifice myself on this very same range, this very same mountain range as you stand here today. As, As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I remember hearing, maybe you've heard this story about a missionary that was working with, I believe it was an Indonesian tribe, and he was trying to help them to understand the gospel according to their culture and in their words. And then he he learned about this, how this tribe was warring with another tribe and he was familiar with how that was always going on. And there was going to be a great celebration because the tribes had reached a treaty. And as a part of that treaty, one of the the, um, chieftain of one of the tribes came and brought his infant son. And he brought and he gave his son to the other chief. And in their culture, the understanding was, as long as my son is living in your house, we will not make war against your tribe. You know what that son was called? The peace child. The peace child. The child that would bring peace between the tribes. And that missionary realized, there's my touch point of the gospel. That Jesus is God's peace child. We see even further here that Jesus is our substitution as our peace child. How is it that God, 
would be true to his word, commanding Abraham to make a sacrifice. He provided the ram. How is it that Abraham could be true to his word that a sacrifice would be provided? And that he and Isaac would return after having worshipped God with a burnt offering. God provided a substitution. It was only by a substitution having been provided. And this is the same for how God provides salvation to us as sinners. He provides a substitution. This is how it is that he can both be just. The penalty is paid. And he can also justify declaring us righteous. This is what Romans 3 25 through 26 says, in the NIV, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, speaking of Christ, through faith in his blood. He did so to demonstrate his justice because in the forbearance, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This could only happen because of a substitutionary sacrifice being offered. This is why the ram wasn't able to speak up and say, Oh, okay, we've both learned a great lesson here. Look at this. Isaac, you were obedient. Abraham, you were obedient. We're all good here. I'll be just going on my business. No, it had to be sacrificed. Through that sacrifice, God was passing over the sins of Abraham the sins of Isaac, and so on, because he was going to pour all of that penalty out on his son Jesus. And he has done so now. And so we have one person, one sacrifice to look to, one time sacrifice that was powerful enough, eternally enough, almighty enough to cover all of our sins as our substitution. He took the penalty that we deserve. Let's bow our heads. And if you have never asked God to give you the righteousness of Christ with, having him, with him having taken the penalty of your sin, somehow maybe you've thought all this time you've been good enough, you don't deserve judgment, or maybe... Being a part of a church is, is enough. I want to challenge you to pray with me. Father, my sinful condition makes it so that I cannot have a relationship with you. But thank you for sending Jesus as the sacrifice for my sin. Lord, I pray that you would give me the righteousness that I don't deserve. Because I believe that you took the penalty that I do deserve. Lord, give me a relationship with you as my father. And I pray that you would indwell me with your Holy Spirit. So I can walk as your child. Father, I, I ask that we as a church body would experience a, a 100% representation in your kingdom. 
I ask, Father, that somehow you would allow our families to experience a 100% representation in your kingdom. And we know, Lord, that that is not going to come by any of our works. But yet at the same time, Father, we know that as we walk through testing, as it proves our faith before a watching world, that that faith becomes more clear, that that justification becomes more evident, and that others are blessed by better understanding your gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be clear pictures of your gospel as you do test us, as our faith is proven. I pray, Lord God, that you would receive all the glory. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.